Hello and welcome to another edition of Barbarian to the Gate. This is Jeremiah Jenny broadcasting high above the Dongcheng district of Beijing. With me in the studio, as always, my intrepid co-host, David Moser. David, how you doing today? Oh, a little bummed out from the events of last week and this week, I guess. Just, I mean, for a timestamp, I guess we should mention this is the the week where, uh, you know, a stand-up comedian, hapless stand-up comedian, made an innocent joke and was canceled. Uh, and then uh, numerous uh, performances involving foreigners were, were canceled or or delayed in various venues it sort of cast a pallor over the musical community uh, the bar community and i myself had a couple of gigs canceled i think you had a gig canceled too weren't you supposed to be playing in a in a uh, in a band that a show that got canceled uh i was going to perform at an open mic that got canceled oh. and then we did a we did play with a, some music but we did it in somebody's courtyard so uh-huh, okay. you know, beyond or, or at least outside the surveillance capacities or at least the surveillance capacities as they chose to use them of the powers that be. I'm glad you brought that up, though, because that's this got... Is, this, is, this, this is going to be inauspicious, uh, you know, linkage with our guest today. We're all three musicians who, well, we too have felt the pressure of, of these, you know, of this crackdown. It's, it's very ominous because it does not bode well. But luckily, today we're going to be talking about the glorious past and not the present. Yeah, I know. So one of these things we're going to talk about this an era... <laughs> You know, we've talked about this before, but like, you know, the era of like 10 years ago and wow, there was like rock music and there were music clubs and there are today too, kind of, but it's a very different landscape. So taking us through a tour of rock music past, a little bit in the present, we have with us Andrew Field, historian. He's joined us on the podcast before. Andrew is the author of many books and articles on the history of nightlife, dance and music in urban China. He has produced independent documentary films on jazz and the rock music scene here. Andy, how you doing? I'm doing okay. I, I'm actually really loving being back in Beijing. I didn't. Re- I haven't really spent time in Beijing since before COVID. I think the last time I spent like a substantial amount of time here, like a few days, was in 2018. So it's great to be back. This is my second trip to Beijing in the past month. And it's just so fantastic to be here in this city. I'm just loving it so much. Well, we're glad you're here because you've just released a new book, Rocking China, Rock Music Scenes in Beijing, Shanghai, and Beyond. It's a, an incredible trip through a period of time that you know David and I were both here back. We're going back to like 2007, 2008. Uh, you know, you've been here the entire time and, and it, you know, it, it is striking to me at least the difference between Beijing and the music scene and Beijing as a city and the cultural vibe in 2007, 2008 and what exists in 2023. Yeah, it's definitely a different landscape. And uh, one of the themes, one of the arguments of my book is that Beijing was the epicenter of rock music in China. Uh, There was no question about that 15 years ago. Um, And it seems to have lost that status. And so one of the things that I ask in my book is why, first, why did Beijing become the epicenter of rock music and and who contributed to the formation of of the most lively, active rock scene in China? Um, And then the second question is when and why did Beijing cease to, to be the epicenter of rock music in China? 
well, let's let's think about the origins too. And you want the what was the goal behind writing this book? How does this tie into some of the earlier projects that you've worked on relating to the music scene in China? Well, I I wrote my first book about nightlife in Shanghai in the 1920s to 1950s, so the jazz age. So I spent a lot of time researching the history of uh, of music scenes in Shanghai, and I wrote about the dance halls, cabarets, and nightclubs, and all the musicians who played in them, and the dancing that happened, and all the social and cultural life that surrounded them. Um, so that was my first big uh, book project, and then I co-wrote a book with uh, James Ferrer, who's a scholar of, um, well, used to be a scholar of China, a sociologist based in Tokyo. Now he's more of a Japanologist. He's become by dint of living there. But we wrote a book together, which we published in 2015, called Shanghai Nightscapes, which is actually about a history of the nightlife of the city of Shanghai going uh, going through a whole century of, of history. So I've always been interested in uh, nightlife spaces, in live music spaces, in the interactions between musicians and their audiences, in the way people receive and absorb music, how music scenes grow and develop. So when I came to Beijing, to uh, I actually had a temporary job for my alma mater, Dartmouth College, which has, has been running a study abroad program at Peking Normal University, since the 1980s, and I was hired to temporarily direct that program in the fall of 2007. So uh, that brought me here for the summer and fall of 2007. And one of the first things that I kind of latched on to was the rock music scene, because everybody was talking about it, and it, there just seemed to be some really special energy going on in that scene. And of course, it related to my research on nightlife, on on music scenes. So it was another project that I felt I could throw myself into. Um, and I did it through filming the scene. So my original intention was to make a film. And as with uh, so many projects that I get involved in, I totally underestimate the amount of time and effort it's going to take to complete these projects. Which is good, or otherwise you'd never complete it. Yes. <laughs> so I usually go in very innocently thinking, oh, this will take a few months of yeah. my time. And that, and that project took years. That project took years to, uh, to complete. And I uh, ended up working with, with a filmmaker based in Shanghai, Judd Wilmot. And we spent a few years actually putting together that film. <laughs> so we ended up uh, co-producing co that, that film. And I was screening it. We were screening it for, uh, it, it got into a few film festivals. You know, I screened it at different universities and in private affairs and such. And it always got good uh, feedback and people always wanted to know more. Oh, what's happened to these bands? Where, oh, um, yeah, they're so cool. What, what happened to the scene? What happened to the bands? And as the years progressed, it was kind of like, Oh man, it's getting more. The, the answers are getting more and more complicated because more time goes by. Mm -hmm. So finally, I said, I think I'm just going to write a book about this because I actually have all the materials that I need for a book. I've got uh, a lot of the, you know, the video uh, recordings that I had. I had interviews with people, lengthy, extended interviews with people in the scene, and I had the journals that I had written. I, I have an online journal called ShanghaiSojourns.net. 
and I had been posting journal entries throughout that project. So I had a lot of detailed information about the scene as it developed, and I had been following the scene for years afterwards, and I had continued to keep up with the bands and with the people that I had met, you know, catch up with them every now and then and kind of see how they were doing. So it made sense to put it all together into a book. But like the film, I, I, I approached it like, oh, this will be easy to write. This will just take a few months and then I'll find a publisher. It'll be really quick. Get another book out there as quickly as possible. And that didn't happen. It actually was a lot harder than I thought to write this book. You know, I think part of the, uh, the challenge of writing such a book is that it's actually not easy to write about music. Hmm. Um, and that's one thing that I, one reason why I took up this challenge I wanted to get some experience writing about music. Um, and it's hard to, to write about music and music scenes. Um, there are a lot of different challenges uh, associated with writing about, you know, how do you write about what's going on in a crowd when they're listening to music? Or what's going on in people's minds when they're listening to or dancing to music in a crowded club late at night? Mm -hmm. Are they listening to the lyrics? Do they know the lyrics? That's one of the questions that I continually ask in my book is, to what extent do people actually know the lyrics of these bands? Because these were Chinese indie rock bands that were not well known even in China, let alone in the outside world. They did have a fan base, but to what extent did people, could people sing along with their songs and know the contents and understand the contents of the lyrics? And I think with any you know modern rock bands, to a less extent, pop bands. I think pop music tends to be more transparent in the lyrical content, whereas rock music, at least since the 60s, has been kind of an art form. And the lyrics tend to be a little bit more obscure. And that's definitely the case in the Chinese indie rock scene. The lyrics are hard to interpret, even if you can read and, and listen to the Chinese, uh, which I can it's still hard to interpret the meaning and the content of the lyrics, and there's a lot of hidden messages in there. The song I always think of is the one by uh, Karsak Kars, Jongnan Hai. Yes. Which, as you point out in the book, has a couple of different meanings for, for people who are from China. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, Everybody knows it as a popular cigarette brand. Um, so that kind of uh, enables the band to sing that song without getting into any trouble. Um, and there's, as far as I can tell, there's nothing particularly, you know, offensive about that song at all it's just kind of fun it's a fun mm -hmm. song and that was definitely for the uh, car sick cars which was one of the big bands that was coming out of that scene that kind of became their anthem everybody knew that song mm -hmm. very catchy so this is like uh similar in a way to, to Sui Jian's, you know a big anthem which is you soil right yes. which also was obscure a little bit it was supposed to be about a love affair but everyone took it you know for i mean in some sense the power of the lyrics derives partially from their obscurity and the fact that it has a, you know a double meaning and also the context just makes the makes the implications vibrate you know semantically so i mean yeah i want to go i want to ask you what, what, again the question you say as part of the book which is why beijing and it seemed to me that when i saw what I could see of it and go to DB22 and all these places, it seemed like there was a confluence of factors that led to that. First of all, the, the era of bourgeois liberalization crackdowns was sort of over with because the, the party had kind of lost that battle. The internet was now a thing. 
the uh, commerce uh, and you know was going along a pace and sort of depended on these kind of markets flourishing DVD players and, and rock guitars and everything, people growing along here. So they were kind of allowing that. You also had a lot of very easy interaction between foreigners and Chinese musicians. There wasn't a lot of problematic dynamics there, and there was a natural bond. Also, the Chinese youth were now in tune with the international rock scene. I mean, they, they mourned and cried when Kurt Cobain died for example, which was, wouldn't have been the case earlier if a rock star died, they wouldn't know who he was, yeah. except Michael Jackson later on. So, I mean, all these things happening. And then also something about spiritually Beijing is the center of all this Jianghu. So you not only had all these groups of underground workers and indie writers and poets and stuff, but it was this community, almost like New York in the, in the 50s. You know, these things don't arise just because of the music. It's also the other, the poets, and the, uh, the underground economy and uh, the sort of lawlessness of it. So it seemed to me that that's what Beijing was just seething with this energy that came from this magic moment. Yeah, I mean, I talk, uh, you know, I discussed that uh, some in, in the early uh, part of my book, um, The Rise of Beijing. I think you can definitely say that, you know, Yaogun, mm-hmm. which is, of course, what the Chinese call rock music. You can say that that's kind of Chinese rock music, right. Yaogun. Its origins were definitely in Beijing. This was the center. This is where Tui Jian arose. Right. This is where he first sang I Wu Soyo to a stunned audience in 1986 at the Workers' Stadium, which, of course, is a, a space that's replete with historical memory and violence, going back to the Cultural Revolution. He uh, bravely sang this song, which was kind of a cry for personal freedom. That's how I interpret it. Won't you come with me? You know, if I, you know, it's kind of disguised thinly as a love song, but I think it's more of a cry for personal freedom, which was the struggle that people in China were fighting in the 1980s, uh, which is what makes the 1980s such a fascinating and volatile era in modern Chinese history. And I think still an era that needs a lot more study and attention that, than it has received. Um, especially in the culture and art fronts. Um, So Beijing, you know, Beijing gathered the best and the brightest. It was the imperial capital. It it became the capital of the People's Republic of China in 1949. And it it had all the best and certainly best supported art and music institutions in China. It, it gathered all the all the top artists in China who formed enclaves and communities, artists, writers, as you said, poets. Um, and it also had a much higher concentration of foreigners than any other part of China, I'd say up until the 1990s. And then Shanghai, I think, started to become the biggest concentration of foreigners in China by the 1990s. Uh, but in the 80s, it was still Beijing, so a lot of diplomats, journalists, and they were bringing cassette tapes. They were bringing, they were bringing their guitars and playing. So actually, the publisher of this book, Graham Earnshaw, mm-hmm. is I give him credit in the book for being one of, if not the earliest rock band, Western rock band, performing regularly in Beijing in the 1980s. And people like Sui Jian went to their concerts. Um, so that all explains why Beijing became. Kind of uh, the center of rock, and also the the po- because it's the political center because of all the 
the big events that have happened in Beijing, especially in the 1980s. And because rock has always had an inherently rebellious posture, um, I think it made sense that Beijing became the center of rock music in China. Um, so this started in the 1980s and it continued throughout the 1990s. I was in Beijing for several months in the 1990s and I remember Nirvana was huge and there was a, a nascent Chinese rock scene and a lot of them were doing covers of Nirvana. Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So a, a sort of a essential f foreign character that pops up again and again in your book is Michael Pettis, who is not only a, you know, a famous uh, economist and, and teacher at, P at Peking University, but the figure behind the D22 bar and uh, many other things. Why don't you talk about Michael Pettis's role in all of this? Because he was sort of like, what would you, what is, what is the metaphor here? He was yes. the, sort of the, the guiding, you know, uh, he was, he was the, he was the backing that made some of these things possible. So, so uh, Michael Pettis, everybody knows him as an economist. He's one of the leading authorities on the Chinese economy. He teaches at Peking University. Uh, and I met him in 2007 because he was running a club called D22, which even back then was uh, becoming well known as an incubator for indie rock bands. And he he liked to joke that the money he made with his day job, he would then lose in the club, <laughs> um, supporting these bands, mm -hmm. giving them free <clears throat> drinks, giving them kind of free range because he wanted to create a club for musicians to really feel comfortable, safe, experiment. Uh, fail, but grow through failure, learn from each other, kind of a safe zone and an incubator. And that's exactly what D22 became. And I, I wouldn't go so far to say that it was the club of the day because there was Dos Colegas, there was um, Mao Livehouse, mm. there was Yugong Yishan, and there were some other venues as well. Uh, but D D22 definitely played a very important role. And, and a lot of the musicians, the young musicians in the scene who were just coming up like Hedgehog, the band Hedgehog, and Carsick Cars, and many others um, gave D22 a lot of credit. But also Michael Pettis joined together with the frontman of one of the most important bands in the indie rock scene in China called PK-14, and uh, their frontman, Yang Haisong from Nanjing. And uh, they, they formed Maybe Mars, which became an incredibly uh, influential and productive record label that went on to produce dozens of, of albums from experimental rock bands in China with Yang Haisong producing many of them. So I would say in, in terms of foreigners in the scene, I, th I think Michael Pettis definitely deserves the title of being one of the most, if not the most influential foreigners in the Peking indie rock scene. But Yang Haisong, I think, deserves the title of being perhaps the most influential Chinese indie rock musician in the indie rock scene. And he's also such an intelligent and articulate person. He's a poet. He's a thinker. He's a writer. He's an avant-garde musician who uh, credits some of his lyricism to like listening to Bob Dylan and Phil Ox. I mean, before I talked to Yang Haisong, I didn't even know who Phil Ox was. <laughs> These guys know so much about the history of rock music and folk music in the West. So, yeah, it was a real pleasure to, to, to meet them both, Michael and Yang Haisong. And I, and I really have to give them a shout out for being major contributors to this book project as well. The diversity of bands that were playing in Beijing back then was something that was you know, a little surprising to me. 
you know, I, I kind of, I'd been in Asia. I was kind of used to the scenes where you get a lot of like cover bands and things like that. That really wasn't the case in Beijing. There were some, but, but, but you, know, you go to a place like Yugongishan, uh, D22, you know, all these different venues, and you could see bands that ran a, a huge spectrum of different styles and genres from, you know, bands like Arsho Megwe, Secondhand Rose, which always reminded me of what would the Dropkick Murphys sound like if they were from Dongbei <laughs> and decided how to came out of an entirely different cultural tradition, but still amped it up and really put on a show. You know, one of the, I, I would really kind of think one of the heroes of your book, which is the band The Subs, the core duo of The Subs, which is Kang Mao and Wu Hao, right? Yes. And, you know, the, the, they've, the way that they have you know, it's it's one of those bands that's always seemed to be on the cusp of something great. You know, everyone remembers their shows. For those of you who are listening to the podcast right now, there are some kind of grainy clips on YouTube that you can watch. They're not the sound isn't great, but it's not the the sound is not the the key there. You really want to kind of just see the kind of show they're putting on because one of the things about them I think that separates them out, what makes them interesting in your book, and separated them out from a lot of the other bands at the time. A lot. You went to go see Cars, Sick Cars. You went to see some of these bands, and you know they played their songs, and you kind of like sat there and watched them play their songs, and you kind of felt like you were in their living room because they were just kind of playing their songs. You went to see a subs show, and it people would lose their fucking minds. Yes, and the effect that a that a it just reminded me again why rock music is so powerful. It's not just the noise. It's not just the songs. It's not just the lyrics. It's when you have a performer of true you know, inner charisma, like at Kang Mao, who can just reach out and form that electric connection with an audience, that's when, it's, that's when it happens, regardless of, in some ways, regardless of what they're singing about. So I wanted to, add, I wanted to kind of explore that a little bit. What was your connection to the subs? Yeah. And, and how did they kind of, and I know there are other bands in here and there are other people in here, obviously, but how did they become, in some ways, kind of the core of this journey? Yeah, I mean, Subs is really, that was my band. If there's any band that I kind of latched onto and, and really paid a lot of attention to over the years, it was Subs, which, uh, I, you know, they go by the, the acronym Subs. It's capitalized, S-U-B-S. Um, sometimes they're known in Chinese as Shabusu, which means you can kill them, but they don't die, which is a nice... Good. It's that's up there with Coco Cola as one of the best translations I've heard. Um, it's it was a band formed out of Wuhan, which is an industrial city. If you could compare it to an American city in terms of its location, in terms of its kind of role in the country, in terms of its musical influence, I, I would say it's Detroit. Detroit. Yeah. Yes. Detroit. Right. So um, it's the it was it's, it's China's rock and roll city bar none outside of Beijing. Um, so they came out of Wuhan, out of the punk scene. They kind of fell in love with Nirvana. Um, and they all came out of that kind of punk scene of the 1990s. Kang Mao is just such a special person. She's the nicest, sweetest, most intelligent human being offstage. You can have great conversations with her, which I have had over the years. And, and, and yet on stage, she takes on this rock goddess persona that I've never seen from any other performer in the Chinese rock scene, male or female. So uh, I'll tell you the, the funny story of how I first encountered subs. 
I was at Dos Colegas at this uh, festival called the Chindi Fest in uh, 2007. Subs was the last band. They were the headliner of the second night of the festival. So I had been filming and talking to people all day and night for two days for this rock festival. I'd seen some of the best bands in Beijing and I was exhausted. This was like at 11 at night on a Sunday night. I was exhausted. I was like, do I have the energy for one more band? Well, they are the headliner. I should probably stay. And as soon as they got on stage and Kamau started screaming into the microphone and Wu Hao, the guitarist, started playing and the bassist started playing. And it was just like, oh my God, this is too much. Sonic overload. I couldn't take it. So I ran out of the club. I grabbed a beer, ran out of the club, hung out outside for a few minutes, drinking my beers like, I need a break from this. And then this friend of mine came out of the club and he's like, Andy, you got to get back in there, man. This is your band. This band is going to make your project. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. So after my five minute rest and the beer, I was feeling a little better. I went in and sure enough, like within a couple of minutes, I was just entranced by Kang Mao, her style, the wide range of emotions that she was performing on stage the tightness of the band and everybody, like you said, was going completely nuts. It was like a frenzy, like in the early days of punk rock, like in America, or, you know, early 1980s. It was that kind of feeling. And I was like this, I, I'm in the presence of something really unique here. Um, so later I, I was talking to them and I mentioned my project and Kang Mao kind of casually said, she just casually dropped this. She said, well, we're going on the road to, uh, we've been invited by Cui Jian to give a concert in Hunan. Would you like to join us? And there it was. That was my film. <laughs> like right there, Cui Jian, who represents the godfather of rock and roll in China, and Subs, who represented this newer generation, not the youngest generation, but kind of in the middle, playing together on a stage in Hunan, in the heart of China. Yes. So I joined them on a journey, which I think becomes kind of the central part of my film and my book. And I'm hoping that will be one of the most enjoyable parts of the book. And I don't want to say more about it because I want people to read the book. <laughs> well, one thing I took away from that was that, you know, obviously the bands like the Subs, you know, they, they respected where Sui Jan was coming from. But there was this sort of like Motley Crue touring with Ozzy in the 80s kind of thing. Like you are, you know, obviously an icon and someone we respect an awful lot, but we are different generation and we're going to kind of show that our fans and, and where we're heading is, is even beyond where you are there, Lao Tse. And uh, I, I thought that was a really, I mean, I thought that really that balance between like we, we respect the, uh, those who came before us, but we are forging our own path. I thought there was something universal about that in a lot of different musical environments. And I, I found that to be particularly touching. And you know, I won't give that too much away, but the whole, yeah. the whole journey. But I, I do encourage people when you read the book to, to, to take a look at that section in particular. Yeah, that, I mean, and that is true. And, and every generation of musicians passes the torch on to the next generation and hopes they'll carry that torch further. On the other hand, I think 
Lao Tse has really, he's really proven himself over decades. I don't think he's lost his stripes. Some say the tiger lost his stripes years ago. I don't think so. I think Tse Jan is still proving himself again and again to be the brave rock and roll godfather that he was back in the 80s. Last year, during the height of the lockdown, which was the last time I was on this podcast, he gave a concert on WeChat to millions of people. Mm, I remember that, yeah. And I remember I, I, I connected it to my home theater. I was isolated for like three months in a house in Kunshan. Couldn't even see my family in Shanghai during this lockdown period. And I remember seeing that concert and just being so thrilled and millions of people were watching it. Everybody was posting remarks on WeChat. And it was just this communal experience. So I don't, I still think nobody has ever come close to Tui Jian in the history of rock and roll in China. He's mm-hmm. just like almost untouchable. He's also a very articulate person and very aware of his role. And also he has a historical sense that some of these younger bands don't have actually. They're kind of yeah. just reacting. It's, it's interesting to me how this music came to China because it's definitely takes from the, the U S bands that they were slowly begin to, to, to be exposed to in the 1990s. And you mentioned something that's probably worth mentioning because a lot of audience will not know about it is the doc hole. Yes. The doc hole CDs, which I, to me seemed to have just revolutionized. It was a lifeblood for blues musicians, jazz musicians, rock musicians, because uh, well, you can explain what it is and why it was important, but this is why they were first able to really hear, you know, uh, music uh, in all the in all genres uh, for cheap, very cheaply, and and you know, openly. You yeah, exp- sure. Not, just, not yeah. just musicians, but also all crew filmmakers and all. Yeah, Daco was huge. And first, before I do that, I want to give a, a shout out to my colleague, my Dutch colleague, Jeroen oh, yes. de Cloet, yeah. who actually wrote, wrote a book, book. Yes. a definitive read study a very of, good book on of that, yeah. the Daco CDs. Mm-hmm. So these were uh, basically trash uh, that was coming to China in boatloads. These were um, you know, throwaway CDs from the Western world, and, instead of, but, and they were cut uh, to signify that they were trash. But... Uh, the Chinese realized that you could still play almost all the songs. Maybe the last song would be cut off. But you could play almost all the songs on your CD player, usually without breaking it, although sometimes it did uh, break. You probably need to explain, though, that it turns out the CD actually reads the disc from the inside out. Yes. And these gashes were on the outside where they're yeah. like a table saw. That's know? right. Un- unlike a, a record player, right. which is an ancient technology that we grew up with. Right. Where, you, where the groove goes from the outside in. Yeah, so CDs go from the inside out. And so you could you, sometimes you play could the whole to, disc with no problem. Sometimes at all. you yeah. could because the cut wasn't, didn't always hit the CD itself. Right. Um, and also the cases themselves contained tons of information about the music that Chinese people would never have known if they didn't have that artifact. And so Daco CD shops, it was kind of a gray market that arose in the 1990s. I remember these places outside of Tsinghua University. Oh, all um, over the place. All, all over, over the place, place little yeah. underground. And I remember David, I, you know, because back then I was hanging out with Matt Roberts, yeah. your, your bandmate. I still have lots of those Daco yeah. CDs at home, uh, obscure yeah. jazz albums too. 
and the musicians I was uh, I, I was I taught at the the MIDI school. Do you know what that is? Yes. The MIDI school, of course. which was just basically all guitarists, and they all invaded Beijing. You know, they came to be rock guitarists. They all had these these uh, these taco CDs, and th at at that point they knew all the the works of the blues artists of Lead Belly and all that stuff. They they suddenly knew it all, and before that they would never even have a hint of the. And so they were playing all kinds of. There was, an, you know, the entire Blue Note jazz series from Japan that was shipped here. Records uh, uh, that you could never find. They're not even on the catalog anymore. So it revolutionized all of music, really. It, it did in the 1990s. And and I talk about that in my early chapter. And again, uh, read uh, Yuren de Cloet's book if you really want to get into the details of that story. But then in the 2000s, something else happened, which was the internet. Yes. And the internet kind of was a little bit slow in the uptake here in China. Start, people started using it in the early 2000s. But by the time I came back to Beijing in 2007, everybody had access to the internet and they were downloading MP3s. And by that time, Chinese people who were in the music scene were a hell of a lot knowledgeable about music from the wider world than than they had been a generation before and they knew a shitload more about music than i did <laughs> yeah yeah me too and even now they are they know yeah. much more than i do yeah yeah and i i remember uh Liu kai i want to give a, a little shout out to Liu kai whose picture is in the book uh he was the manager of the sugar jar which was hands down the best at record seven, at in the record shop yeah uh, which was run by Lao Yang. But Liu Kai and I became friends, and we, I used to go and hang out at, at the Sugar Jar and just jam with him, play guitar, and and listen to music. And he introduced me to so many cool bands. Like, I'd never heard of this band called the Decemberists, which is this really cool kind of folk rock band, uh, American, and and all these other bands that I was like, wow, he, you know so much. And he just had this endless list of music that he was constantly downloading. And and by that time, you know, they these guys were had their own little underground radio stations. They were playing music to each other. So there was a whole scene developing, but it was still this was still, you know, 15, 16 years ago. It was still very much a word of mouth underground right. scene. Today is totally different. The knowledge of kids, of young people like my students, because I teach a course called Sounds in the City. It's about rock scenes in urban China at uh, Duke Kunshan University. And my students come in to that course with a lot of prior knowledge about music. Not all of them. Some of them know very little. But some of them, I'm just totally surprised with how much they know about both Western and Chinese rock and pop music. So the, the, the rise of social media, I think, was the next wave. So you had, you know, first wave was cassette tapes in the 80s. Second wave was DACO CDs in the 90s. Third wave was the internet and MP3s in the 2000s. And then in the 2010s, you had WeChat, you had social media, and all of a sudden, there was an explosion of knowledge in China about all of these taste cultures. And, and along with that, you have the rising economy of China and the breakneck economic growth and you have a new rising affluent class of people in China, young people especially, who have much more access to knowledge about the wider world, and a lot of them have been abroad. And I think also you had a lot of bands that were coming to China. I mean, you had everyone yeah. from Bob Dylan and Metallica to like Nine Inch Nails. And, yes. And I mean, there was right. a, 
a wide range of musicians who are coming and participating in music festivals, concerts, and of course that's that's a, that's also a little bit of an artifact now. Yeah. Hard to imagine any of those bands or really almost any band these days doing that. But it, I think that also exposed a lot of the uh, you know a lot of those music festivals. Right, you yeah. go and then you'd see in the corner you would see all the bands that I would you would go to see play at the clubs in Beijing who would all be gathered in the corner by the stage watching the the international artists play and they were just as much they were just like you know enraptured just like the fans were at their own shows yes um you mentioned 9 inch nails and it still it just seems miraculous to me that I saw I saw 9 inch nails perform at Chaoyang Park in Beijing in September 2007 during the Beijing Pop Festival along with Public Enemy, Public Enemy playing in <laughs> Beijing. It was unbelievable. And Sui Jian was there too. And, and he, I felt he stood up there with those, with those guys. He was rock. His band was rocking just as hard as, as, as all these top international pop rock acts. And yes, that, so the, there was this global flow of music and musicians in and out of China and that also hugely affected the growth of the Chinese music scene. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I could I could stand in the window and literally point to the space just to doubt, across the park where I saw Megadeth once, oh. and the Roots <laughs> on another occasion. Not the same show, people. That wasn't even that long ago. It was probably about seven or eight years ago. But I think one of the I do want to talk about in in relation to that, and this is kind of something David brought up in the beginning of our our show. You know, things have changed so dramatically here. For, and, and, you know, there's a lot of different ways to explain that, to measure that, to articulate that. But I think the closing, literal closing of cultural spaces and the uh, just general closing of the cultural space um, has been one of the biggest shifts uh, for those of us who have lived here in the last five, six, seven years. And what David was mentioning was this... Uh, situation of course with the comedian who made the joke that was a play on something you know uh, it was a play on a particular phrase that was associated with the people's liberation army and this and uh, xi jinping as a result he got into a lot of trouble and then the trickle down happened and i want to get your opinion on this david i you know this is something that kind of it was on twitter even made the new york times uh you know this idea that there all these bands were being canceled like being Shows were being canceled. Foreigners weren't being allowed to perform, except that it wasn't. It was really haphazard, as like a lot of these things are, was super haphazard. Here's my theory, and maybe I am totally wrong. Love to get your opinion on this. I kind of feel like it was like a district official or someone in like the Chaoyang district who got like about mm, eight inches out over their skis and started contacting some of the people in his jurisdiction, like you know, just shut it down. Like what often happens is you get screenshots get shared and it suddenly becomes this nationwide policy when it probably I feel like this was more of like local government overreach because it seems like and yet I, I you know there were things that I was part of those canceled things that you, part of you were canceled the shows that were canceled but it seems like things are kind of coming back and it didn't seem to affect Dongcheng that much mm -hmm. I, I do want to say I want to step in and say something about this because first of all I think there I think because you guys live in Peking you have a very Peking centric view of China, just like I have a Shanghai-centric yeah. view. Yeah. And, and actually, things that happen here don't necessarily resonate with the rest of China. Yeah. So, um, but, I, but I think also, in some of these cases, there are, there are behind-the-scenes maneuverings and rivalries that we don't know about that are playing as well in the commercial world. 
that then affect the political world and vice versa. So, but but be China being fairly, you know, the the, the political scene here being fairly obscure, uh, it's it's uh, we never know for sure what's going on. Well, I've got the Jing Pai answer, which is always politics. You've got the Hai Pai answer, which is always right. economics. That's a, that's a, <laughs> this is what I want to say about China, which is what, what I hope this book reflects, and certainly my 20 years of experience living here. Um, China ha- China is like a car that's on the highway. There are basically two, there are three things that a car can do to control itself. It can press the gas, it can press the brake, and it can move the steering wheel. But when you're on a highway, you can't really move the steering wheel. You can't really steer very far in any other direction except to change a lane. But I think China is on the highway of globalization. Now and then the the government panics a little bit. Some things that maybe there's a big truck ahead that it perceives and and it puts on the brakes, but it never stops. China is on since the 1980s, since the opening reforms started under Deng Xiaoping, China has been on an accelerated pathway towards globalization. And that's the direction that I see it keep going. So there will be occasionally some very uncomfortable applications of the brakes, you know, and maneuvering around some kind of obstacle, but it's still moving forward in that direction. So long as it doesn't go into a massive fishtail skid and hit the guardrail? (laughs) Well, you know, we can look at what happened with COVID. Or the minivan of foreign residents of Beijing just haplessly driving and then laying next to it? Yes. I, I think if there was any like guardrail incident, it was COVID over the past few years, which really knocked the world for a loop, but especially China. We For China, COVID was a roller coaster ride. I experienced COVID, as we discussed in our last podcast, both in the US and in China including the most severe application of an urban lockdown ever in world history. But now Shanghai is in full swing again, and so is Beijing. And, uh, you know, I think it's only a matter of time before those big international rock acts come back to China. I think that's going to happen. I hope you're right, Andy. I, uh, I do too. Because <laughs> uh, I, 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 uh, it's just tough to like when you want to go see a show, just have to jump over to Manila. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Andy, thank you so much for coming in today. The, the book is Rocking China, Rock Music Scenes in Beijing, Shanghai, and Beyond. It is out this week from Earnshaw Press, uh, available on Amazon, electronic versions available too, and it's also available in China. Is that correct, Andy? Uh, yeah, I, I would probably um, there will be some local bookstores uh, in Shanghai and elsewhere um, that Earnshaw Books uh, distributes books to. Um, but it's definitely available on Amazon, and I encourage uh, readers who read the book to post a kindly review <laughs> on Amazon or Goodreads. Uh, that will really help to uh, to um, give the book more um, exposure to a wider audience. I'm really hoping that it reaches a wider audience. And finally, we'll also post this in the show notes, too. Uh, there is a Spotify playlist that goes along with the book. So for those of you who are reading it, I, I really enjoyed like following the playlist uh, through the book as well. Mm-hmm. It's, got, it's yeah. got many of the bands mentioned uh, in Andy's book. Yeah, and so finally, I need to shout out to uh, DJ Bo or Brian Offenther, uh, who's an old friend of mine in Shanghai who uh, put together this playlist and has been very supportive and, and even helped to fine edit the book. He's, he's a virtual encyclopedia of music. Um, so I really encourage you to uh, 
to listen to the playlist that he put up on Spotify and on QQ. Well, great. Thank you so much, Andy. And thank you all for listening to another episode of Barbarians at the Gate. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. As always, you can send us your emails, tweets, or other requests. We'll play the platters that matter here in the studio. (laughs) Have a great week. Talk to you all soon.